Welcome to uh, the uh, Fans Are Critics 2 panel at, uh, at the 31st Galway Film Flash. So, yeah, motoring along now. So, anytime, heading towards middle age, apparently. Uh, according to one of the speakers earlier this week, 35 is when you hit middle age, so we're all screwed. Uh, <laughs> But so this, I'm Niall. I, I run Scanon. It's an Irish film and blog, and I'm very happy to be uh, moderating this panel today with some fine critics from from around the world. So beside me, we have Finn Halligan from Screen Daily. Um, be, beside her is uh, Boy Van Hoy from uh, the Hollywood Reporter and uh, a freelance film critic, but mainly for the Hollywood Reporter. And, and next is uh, our own Don Clark <laughs> of the Irish Times. So. Um, Topic of the panel is that uh, apparently we're all film, as Bill's been film critics, that we started off and we continue to be fans of film. So I think it's it's it, that's a, and that's a, a thing that in this world, in the twen- in sort of modern online discourse, where critics are kind of lumbered in with the other experts to be ignored. Uh, it's kind of, it's worth remembering that first and foremost, the reason that any of us got into writing about film is because we're, we wanted to celebrate film. Yeah. So I, I just want to say, like, what, ask then, what was it about your own personal experiences that brought you into critiquing film? So I guess, I, I'll start with you, Finn, please. Uh, again. Start with me. Yeah. Um, my personal, well, you know, I, you're absolutely right because I started out as a film fan. Um, from a very young age in Ireland. I'm Irish, although I work for Screen International, which is in London. Um, And so watched a lot of film, and pretty quickly, after seeing, I think, probably Star Wars, which dates me, I watched everything, watched everything, everything. By the time 16, 17, 18, watching, 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 watching. I could see things in rep then. You know, you would go, to, you could go and buy a ticket for a whole day's worth of screenings. So in a way, it was almost easier to watch a cross-culture of film. There was, you know, <laughs> wasn't even online at that point. And, um, the, and and at the same time, I was working. I was training to be a journalist, and I was working as a journalist. But when I started in the newspapers, I would always try to write about entertainment, film, TV, and um, and then waited until I got a chance to be a film film critic, really. Um, for me, actually, it's the other way around because I was a journalist and I sort of happened into this uh, into this gig because a, a woman was, went on maternity leave and they needed a film critic. And they were like, we need someone. Do you want to do it? You're young. I'm You're sure young. you go to the cinema. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, sure. Even though it was kind of weird because I'd, uh, I went to a boarding school for a couple of years way out in the boondock, so I hadn't been to the cinema for like two years. And then suddenly I got that gig. So it was kind of strange. Um, but I would definitely say I'm a film fan, and actually the fact that I write about it and I analyze films really helps me appreciate film more, I think. Um, so in that sense, I'm definitely a fan, yeah. Um, I suppose going way back, I would say my mother was a large factor in that. My mother was and still is at 87, um, a still a great film fanatic, and she still potters down to the Queen's Film Theatre um, once or twice a month. Um, to see what's on there. And she, I mean, right from an early age, she would have talked obsessively about the films that she liked in the 40s and 50s, a lot of which were kind of forgotten. A lot of them, which, a lot of them were British films, you know, starring people who no one talks about, who people rarely talk about now, Anna Nagel and people like that, um, who were on television at that point. And then yeah, my education, it's interesting, there are generational things here. Um, and... Um, uh, I suspect Boyd would more be a video generation than I would be because we were we were very much pre-video. 
in my generation. If you're American of my age, you might have been of the video generation as a kid. For me, it was television. And it was television at a time when, which has changed greatly to now, they showed films made more than 20 years prior to that point on broadcast television at civilized hours. Um, so that's where I got the initial burst of film education. I would have got then a second burst of film education when I was at university um, via the Trinity College Dublin Film Society, which uh, is, um, I don't think it exists any longer, which is a great tragedy because that, gr- that was a classic film society in the old school, which used to show three, <clears throat> maybe even four films a week projected, obviously, because this was before there was any other option, any and film, this is before there was an option to do anything, anything else. Um, and what was wonderful about that was it had a huge scope, so that you could go and see Tarkovsky's Mirror on Monday, and then they'd have a print of um, Alien on Tuesday, and you had to, <laughs> what really dates that, I think, is that you had to actually wait for them to change the reel, because <laughs> they only had one projector, they didn't have a one of the systems they have in at cinemas where it's automatic changeover, so you'd sit and go tap your fingers for after eight, every twenty minutes for about thirty seconds while someone pulled it off, put it on again, uh, and that was a, that was a great education. How I eventually came into to writing full time about film was via Film Ireland, and I was asked. Interesting, there's not another part of my education. I was asked to write for Film Ireland at about the time I was m- involved in making short films. Um, the first of which I wrote was a film called My Dinner with Oswald, which is dire- directed by Paul Dwan, whose film we're all missing <laughs> right now <laughs> in the town hall, but, um, uh, which is, makes us all the more grateful you came to see us. Um, uh, but certainly see that when you can. But Paul and I made that film, um, and around the time I was asked to write for Film Ireland, and ultimately I was asked to write for, for the Irish Times as a result of those things. So that's the long-winded uh, story of my life so far. <laughs> and Film Ireland is, is it's, it's a huge part of, of my life as well because it was a huge part of, of my film education growing up and, yeah. it's, and it's, it's now sadly as a paper publication it ceased quite a while ago and then the, the film side, the website of it kind of got lost in limbo when our uh, when film base yeah. uh, closed down but now, but now it's back and, and uh, it's great that Stephen and, and Gemma still carry the torch for that and it continues to this day but that's what that happened there is a classic example of what has been happening across the industry, where the the magazines of for film or that or the the print outlets for film slowly but surely moved online and then became totally online. So the vast majority of you your work is now digital rather than for print. You know, so has that made things easier? Has that made things worse? What way are you seeing the the the, the, the change affecting the world? Because you you you've had the longest experience, Don. So. Um, well, it would be uh, um, less than you'd think, I think, would be one thing I'd say as far as the Irish Times goes, in that oh, I couldn't put a number up, but I would say probably 80%, maybe 9% of what I write is still ends up in the paper now. Um, uh, I would say 80-90% people would read it, read it online. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, it is in the newspaper. As a good illustration of this, um, I th- of how, that, how that's changed, I think a really good point would be to look at the Cannes Film Festival, where Boyd and I and Finn were all, we were, we were all there that, that, uh, yep. a few months ago. Um, uh, I first went there when my late colleague, colleague Michael Dwyer died in two, early, two, early 2010, actually New Year's Day 2010, and I went first in 2010, and that was very interesting for this conversation, in that that was right on the cusp 
of where this was really changing. And obviously at that stage when we train, every, everything was more or less, everything was online that you wrote in the newspaper. But it's still at that stage, you were just still in that notion where you were writing for something that was going to go into print, but would also go online as well, you know, as a surplus. Um, and it was at that point that I think that it totally swung. At that stage, you were a year or two, at that stage, people were still, the main fixation was getting something onto print the following day. And so old school deadlines were still in force. And the point I'm getting to crucially here is that in the space of two or three years, what changed there was the notion of the consensus on a film forming, a consensus on a film formed over the 12 hours, 24 hours after it was premiered. By 2012, 2013, this is much to do with social media as it is to do with online journalism per se, the consensus on a film after a premiere formed within 10 minutes. That you would go outside the, the palais in Cannes and you would see people with their phones, just boys, they're tapping madly on their phone outside. And that was them and us, <laughs> me, I, I was guilty as well, tapping in their response to a film on Twitter immediately afterwards. That's, I think, a really big change, where, I think, where, where it immediately happens when film festivals, at this event, there'll be premieres of Irish films and there will be a consensus of some sort flowing out into the ether within five, ten minutes. That's a huge change from <coughs> not even 20 years ago, I would say even from 10, 15 years ago. But they've tried to pull it back this year, haven't they? With they the embargoes, yeah. yeah. But I mean, well, like, I you think know, it largely worked for them. Do you? What do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. They yeah. worked for them. They tried to. I mean, if you got a if you got a seat in Cannes screening and you tweeted your opinion before the embargo that evening, no, but the embargo, but the embargoes were generally. I mean, the, the only embargoes that were significant oh, we were those were, were a few hours. Right. Yes. Sorry, sorry, we yeah. saw them early. The tra- we saw them earlier. Were a few hours. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 but the point still remains that when the embargo is up. Um, then the consensus forms yeah, in yeah, 15 yeah. minutes. I mean, if there were an embargo in the past, then it was still, you'd have to wait for things to go into print and there'd be kind of a shuffling of opinions around. But when the embargo is up, still now, bang, that's, you know, some opinion is out there in the digital ether and that opinion is formed almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, following on from that, what we see increasingly on social media in particular is there's a, there's a hype and backlash cycle happening. But what between people are... The, the, the instant praise from critics at, at Sundance and then the film takes six months and something happens in between and backlash starts happening in that period when and or may or there may be two or three maverick or renegade critics who go against the consensual opinion and start trying to and then changing the, the, what was the narrative on, before the release and so it, it gets kind of muddy we, we've kind of seen this this thing where the entire debate on the film is done before any general audience member sees it yeah and I think that's very unhealthy to be honest um, because I mean they're not making the movies for us so let's be real I mean I wish that were the case but that's not true <laughs> they're making the movies for you guys um, but I do feel that film Twitter as, as we, we're being called um, lives in its own sort of bubble yes. and, and out of step with um, the, the rest of the other, even though I must say the more and more, especially American films, get released almost the same week as, as they do in the States, whereas before it'd be months or maybe even a year or something, um, but that window is also closing, so. Yeah, and, and that's something, the theatrical release window thing is something that 
closing and, and the, the shortening of it is something that is that the street, that you can see happening across the world, like everywhere except France, where you know they've put in place incredibly strict rules, which has led to a Netflix versus France thing. You know, or, or can not showing films because Netflix are the ones who made it, and therefore, if they were to show it, it would be two years before they could think. So, the, so you're seeing traditional festivals kind of being a little bit bullied by the content generators now. And so you're seeing a change in in the power dynamics of uh, of Hollywood, and that and the kind of binary nature of aggregate sites like Rotten Tomatoes and things like that have led to a sort of instant it's good, it's bad, and the middle ground where it's, it's or the, to use the Irishness, it's grand you know, it's, it's just alright like doesn't seem to happen, it's either the best thing ever or the worst thing ever Well I think that's sometimes the case, you know, when you, when you it, at the moment there's not that many um there's hardly any staff writers who are film critics anymore on papers, mm-hmm. I mean and so people are going out to festivals you know, Venice or Toronto or Sundance, which is vastly expensive, sort of, and there's a feeling that the film has to be the best ever, or it has to be the worst ever, or there's nothing in between, or they can't sell the story, or they can't, you know, and so for us, I think, you know, who are less, well, you know, we go out there anyway, we're first, first point of call, I keep looking at Boyd because he's in the same business as I am, which is sort of immediate trade, know, publications. trade publications, yeah. so we're not in a consumer zone at all. So you're seeing this come out and forming its bubble and pulling back and in and out and and whatever. But I think that's that's what's led to it. The, 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 there's there's pros and cons and yeah, I, I don't know where I'm getting with this point. But no, that, but I think it's also a, a, things like a Twitter reaction. It's like I mean, how many characters do we have now? Yeah, Two eighty yeah. or something? I don't know. But it's still. I mean, it's not an analysis of a film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't say much more than it's great or it sucks. So because yeah, there's yeah. no room to expand yeah, on yeah. that. But that at least at least you are able to say it's great or it sucks. But I didn't. I like this and I like that. What's worse is that, and this goes way back, is that it's interesting that you write for publications that I think I'm right in saying neither of you give star ratings, right? No. Yeah, which I think is brilliant. Um, and there's a few, uh, and there's a, few, you know, there's a very, very few newspapers that still manage it. I mean, it's interesting, the Observer's interesting case in point, where they don't have star ratings in the newspaper, but they do online. Because clearly they thought, you know, people go to a Mark Kermode or, you know, a Wendy Eyed review, they don't want to read it. You know, I mean, like, God, are you crazy? I just want to see the star rating. At least 250 words. <laughs> yeah, are you crazy? I've got to tell you, you know, I've got things to do and read the bloody thing. So I thought that, that was interesting. And the New York Times, you know, being, you know, the, the, the grey lady still resists star ratings. But, you know, we fell in with the, with the pack in 2000, I think, you know, almost 20 years ago. Um, and the point I was getting to slowly was that you were talking about the difficulty of Twitter. What's, what is worse... One of the things I think we're pretty talking about in this panel is do critics still matter? And one of the answers to that is, is sort of an, uns- is an unsatisfactory yes. By, which, by what I mean by that is, in one sense, over the last three, or three four, five years, critics have started to matter more than they have in decades. Um, and that is in relation to the score on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, now it's funny, Rotten Tomatoes has been around for 20 years. Um, uh, but it's only the last four or five years when it's really become this phenomenon. Um, that's obviously because social media boosted Rotten Tomatoes more than anything else, Twitter in particular, all the others, Instagram and Facebook as well, boosted. Now, it's not even, not even, not even Metacritic. You know, Metacritic at least gives you a graded yeah. score. Yeah. So you know, you, they're assessing the review out of 100. Um, in this case, it is 
splat or fresh. Yeah, rather um, fresh. That's it. And they yeah. can't do they can't do any kind of nuance in your review either. You know, if you sort of trying to say no, something but, and you're but not saying it really clearly. Yeah. You get a you get a red tomato and you're like, oh no, I didn't like the film actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've had some of them corrected on Rotten yeah, Tomatoes yeah, where yeah. I'm sort of reading it and I'm like, uh, rotten? No. no. <laughs> well, funny enough, <laughs> kind of mixed, but not yeah. rotten. <laughs> well, if I put my own up because um, you can. This, this is far too inside baseball for most people here, but you can you either put the, put your own up or else they do it for you. I put my own up, and this is the occasion that people say like, you oh, know, but I, I, you know, you, this is not all. Well, all what you said, well, it is. No, but the quote at the top is different. No, no, but read can review. Yeah. 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 Use my language, and you'll understand why I came to that assessment. But the long and short of what I'm saying there was that it's not even that quote that has the influence. It's purely the score. Um, and this has led to a weird kind of cult, um, an anti-cult on social media around Rotten Tomatoes, where there was a camp, during the time of the after release of Batman versus Superman, or was it just? It was Batman versus Superman. There was a um, there was a, a, a campaign to have it to um, have Rotten Tomatoes banned, um, and part of the there were all kinds of ludicrous. I don't quite begin about ludicrous as well. But one of the things that was most ludicrous about this was the perception that somehow Rotten Tomatoes was a was a body in itself that was coming to an opinion, yeah, yeah. rather than a very blunt instrument to assess critics throughout the world. Anyway, I'll let someone else talk. <laughs> I could rant all day about that. No, but this, it's the, that going back to, to that, just that particular point about superhero films in particular, and they and how they're reviewed, and the fact that the critic they're they're, they're kind of viewed as being critic proof to a certain extent. So that so or there's this there's that word critic proof as if your critical opinion of these things doesn't mean... I don't think it means anything. Yeah. Do you think no, it no, it doesn't. Um, Not and much, no. I, I, no. Also because they've made up their mind before they've seen the film. I remember, I mean, I don't review a lot of superhero movies, thank God, but um, I had to review one of the Spider-Mans, I don't know which one, <laughs> um, and it went up on Rotten Tomatoes, and it hadn't come out yet, but, I mean, they lifted the embargo, I don't know, one week before or something like this, because they thought the reviews were going to be good. And within an hour, I had like 200,000 comments of people saying, down with Boyd, you suck, this movie is great. And they hadn't seen it. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. You had that very recently, Don, where you were the lone reviewer. Oh, that was a funny incident. That was the um, Avengers Endgame, yeah. uh, most recently, which I thought was fine. I mean, I, the first point to make I thought was grand. You know, that, um, it, <laughs> did, it did what it was out there to do on a monumental scale. It did. And I said as much and gave it three stars. That wasn't enough. But... What was interesting there was, 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 was I think we should, we'll have to get on to, which will, this will lead us into another subject, which is, worth, which is worth getting at. But the first point was I, wasn't, I didn't like it enough. Um, the second point was the issue of spoilers, which we're going to have to address, I think, mm, at yeah. some point, um, uh, which is the conversation around which has gone bonkers and is just bananas. But anyway, the other thing was, because out of, out of an aberration, this again shows how powerful Rotten Tomatoes is when you're trying to live a life, well, not live a life, when, when part of your life is lived on, on, on uh, social media, uh, is that um, for, by an aberration, my, I put my review in, it was put up at 10 o'clock, on 10 o'clock in our time uh, that week, which was, it, which was the embargo time. And as well as some kind of glitch in Rotten Tomatoes, nothing else went up on the Rotten Tomatoes for about 45 minutes to an hour. So there's this one review sitting in the middle of a Rotten, which was me in little old Ireland, saying, it's all right, and, uh, <laughs> and telling a few things that happened in the first, you know, through the course of an hour of the film. 
and I was bombarded um, for you know hours. And one of the things they were all saying, they were all saying, "You've broken the embargo. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have your job, mate. I'm gonna have your job. I'm gonna have your job, mate." Um, that went on for hours. Of course, I hadn't broken the embargo, but the fact there was one review sitting alone in the middle for an hour or so convinced them that it went. But you know, welcome, to, welcome, to 2019. There are people who've got real problems in the world. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> No, so yes, you do bring up a very big thing. I mean, it's impossible to review a film without actually talking about its plot. That's you know, and to a certain extent, yes, you don't ruin an ending of a film, but there has to be a moratorium on how much of the film you can reveal in your thing. I I meant anything in the first act is fair game. Mm -hmm. Anything in the first act is fair game. Yeah, of course it is. So, but. This, the superhero films in particular, and the, that one in particular, Avengers Endgame, because of the, the central plot of it, and I'm, I'm going to spoil it because I don't care, is a time travel heist thing. Mm. And it happens quite early. So if you don't mention that, how do you talk about the film at all? Like, you, know, you can say, oh, the action was good, the actors were good, and it's just generic bland statements at that point. You're not actually delving into anything of... Yeah, it's also something that they hadn't done in the other films, so it's something that you want to talk about. You know, it's something new that they're trying to do, so you have to address it somehow. Um, but I think it also depends a lot on the on the audience, because yeah, for Finn and myself, writing for a trade review, I mean, we're our readers are like distributors or people that might be interested in in buying the film or people that might be interested in programming it somewhere, and a lot depends on the ending. Like if a romantic comedy has a downer ending, you know, for the sales that might mean something completely different. Mm. So you cannot not talk about it, you have to talk about it. There's no way you can sort of say, well, she dies before he gets there. <laughs> um, <laughs> which would be a spoiler, and it might happen in the last five minutes, but since it is something that has such a big repercussion on the possible sales of it, and that's like our bread and butter, like yeah. we're telling, you know, potentially interested people uh, what kind of a, a market there is for that film, that it's ver it's a, it is very important informa information. But since now we're, being published online, it has become very complicated for us because it's, they're not the primary audience anymore. Yeah. Because the people that are also reading it are a bigger audience than our prim actually primary audience. So it's it's very complicated for us. But it's also just sort of feeds into the, the Twitter thing. Like you, you would have seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in in, in Cannes, and of course Twitter kicks off Margot Robbie. She's got a, she's got a prime billing, but she doesn't have a big part. And it, and if you've seen the film, you know why she doesn't have a big part. But if you tell the readers why she doesn't have a big part, you really ruined the film. So, you know, in a way, you've got to stand back from that noise. Well, and, you know, yeah. you really do. It's, it's, it's just, this is, uh, film Twitter, I think, is hot noise. Yeah, But you're absolutely right, Finn, you've got to stand back. But what's, I mean, in this conversation, it's interesting, when you, I've talked to kind of people who haven't been paying close attention to the way this chatter goes, particularly around franchise films, is that they'll say, um, oh, but you know, I don't want someone to tell me the end of the film with a twist. Say, no, 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 you, no. This is, you know, like this is like, you know, you're talking about like old school pot, and I'm talk talking about the new really strong sense Amelia that's sending people mad. That's not what people mean by a spoiler anymore. Of course, you don't yeah, say yeah, that, yeah, say yeah. that you know this, that Rosebud is a sledge. Yeah. Or that, you know, <laughs> sorry if you haven't seen Citizen Kane. Um, uh, you know, or, or any of those things. Of course, you don't really reveal anything in the last third if you yeah, can yeah. avoid it. You know, or any even any twists early on. But that's not what is meant anymore yeah, by, by the spoiler police, by yeah. a spoiler. It's, it's very straightforward what they mean by this. What they mean is, when it comes to superhero films in particular, franchise films in particular, they mean any element of the plot that is not revealed in the trailer. <laughs> that's 
century yet. Or set leaks. They're obsessed hmm? with set leaks. And, know, you know, <laughs> and, and they're like... Well, I had this conversation on Twitter, right, where I was saying, I'm sorry, I don't agree with you that I've got spoilers. There's nothing, like, you know, everything here is in the first third of the film. You know, so they said, like, that doesn't matter. It's not in the trailer. <laughs> when was this a rule? I mean, like, when did people sit down and sit... I mean, you know, this wasn't a rule 15 years ago or 20 years ago, even five years ago, I think. When, did it, when was there a meeting? When was there a g- gathering of a council who sat around and decided to put it to a vote that yeah. a spoiler is now a sentence not in the trailer? I don't know. Anyway, that's, no, what, that, that's what's happened. And at the same time, I feel like trailers are revealing more now more than, than they, they, yeah, they well, were that's two years ago. Well, also yeah. because they're like three minutes long now, which never used to be the case. Mm. Um, and sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't think I can see that. And then I see the tra- I can, don't think I can say that. And then I'm watching the trailer and I'm like, they're revealing that? Okay. Well, I didn't In that see, case. <laughs> I had a conversation boy, with Neil Jordan about this. Um, and it's from no, the other side of the argument. We're complaining about spoilers. But um, uh, it's a trailer for Greta. Uh, and if you haven't seen the film, I won't, actually, I won't say what I'm talking about specifically. You may, may, you may not have seen the film, but there's a, in the in the trailer there is um, a shot of what is like I think the best twist in the movie, which is one shot. You go, oh, and it rocks back, and it's a really kind of oh, outrageous right. thing. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that's in the trailer, and I said it to him. He said, "Yep, tell me about it." But you know, it's not contextualized in the trailer as well. He went, no, he went, he went back to Universal and said, "Like this gives away too much, doesn't it?" And they said, "Oh no, but it, the trailer plays really well." You know, it's like it's like they're they're now kind of they're now actually test screening trailers mm-hmm. where you test screen movies, and so they come back. Oh, but everyone loves the trailer. It's like, well, never mind. So he and, he, and that, what was interesting about that one things was that Neil Jordan, for all his um, experience in his Oscars, can't do anything about it when it comes down. It, 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 it's a universal decision. It's not his decision. We've we've seen some mad things happen recently with with the I mean, within the last decade in terms of what's happened with trailers. And uh, starting into darkness is always the high point for me in terms of. It had a spoiler within it that people had, you know, huge issues with. But the, the, the Starting into Darkness had a trailer. Before that, it had a teaser trailer. Before that, it had a second, ten-second teaser trailer for the teaser trailer. And before <laughs> that, it had a two-frame vine. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, so you, you see this thing where the, the marketing departments are trying to become more and more clever in how they're. But, but they had. Do you see a pride last weekend? Uh, Judy, the Judy Garden mm-hmm. with Renee Zellweger. Ren, Renee flew in to launch the trailer. The trailer. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it was like, wow. Okay, we're launching a trailer now. So. And now, of course, they are also a part of uh, the trailer thing. There are now there are now traders for the trailer within the trailer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. This thing you click on the trailer, and it'll, and it'll have like a ten-second thing saying, you know, coming up, Isabel Huppert and Greta. Oh, it's yeah. great. Then the trailer starts. Uh, which I, I, I actually asked someone about this somewhere, and it was explained to me that what that that's a Facebook thing. That's the if you're scrolling down Facebook, that you know you will get as it as it scrolls down, you'll see ten second edit of the trailer. Go oh, we'll pick it back up again. Be <laughs> interested and watch the whole thing. Yeah, because it's like a preview for a trailer that's coming right after. I mean, it would not make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there you go. So one of the things that the internet has done is moved the realm of criticism into a sort of wider and for want of a better word, what is called democratic widening of the of who can write about films and who then. So then, how does one define a critic at that point? Like when when anyone can write about film, is anyone <laughs> is anyone actually a critic? Right? I, I was at a I was at a I was at a critics round table actually with a load with a bunch of academics last year, and one of them said, "Well, all you need is a pen to be a film critic," and I thought. 
really? Thank you. <laughs> you know, God, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I think you need a bit more than a pen, you know. <laughs> so I think anyone can write about film, and please do. You know, I mean, I think it, a part of the thing about film critics being fans is that we want people as much as anyone else to see good films. You know, my it's more of an addiction than fanhood for me in that I want to find the next big film. I want to tell you how great it is. I want you to go to the cinema. So if you want to do this yourself in your in your in your blogs or you know what I mean or spread the word about great things, then go for please it. Do. But yeah, you know, exactly. please join us, you know. But sort of to be a kind of a professional film critic in a in a in a paying environment where, you know, um, I think a bit more than a pen, you know. Yeah, also because I mean just, I think people tend to forget that of course we're interested in film, we're film fans, but we're also writers. Like, you have to know how to put a sentence together and how to analyze something. And, yeah. Um, it's a bit more than just, you know, seeing the film and then just sort of saying, wow, that sucks, and then 17 exclamation marks. I mean, <laughs> that's not film criticism, that's just an opinion. <laughs> Ain't it cool news kind of led to that particular vein of, of film reviews where it was hyper... Uh, tech, uh, hyper over punctuated and then it also had uh, like capitals and then anonymous people as well doing reviews and so you had that and it was the kind of first bastion of what became the kind of blogging world of, of film criticism so, but is there a point at which it changes you know it's like is there a point at which somebody who's been blogging for a long time is and is no longer kind of viewed as being a blogger but is kind of viewed as being a member of the critical fraternity because we have this in the Dublin film critic circle that we have as I, I sit on it I don't review films so I'm not technically a critic I'm never, I'm, I would never call myself that but I am a, a writer about film um, so you have that thing where we have that mix of bloggers and critics that sit on something that is called a film critic circle so. well, for yeah. London we say paid Sorry? for London our criteria is paid yeah uh, um, th that is generally the, the, the criterion um, we're a bit more flexible in Dublin simply because there are fewer people yeah. I mean, is, is the long and short of it um, uh, um, and I think Tara who is my colleague in the Irish Times who is the president of the Dublin Film Critic Circle um, her basic principles I understand she sits down and looks over kind of you know months and years of people and they've been at this for a significant length of time and they're doing it in some kind of professional or semi-professional capacity then, then they're in um, as far as that shift goes that now I was talking about from and the, the Intercool News thing is a very interesting example of of the so-called so democracy, the way in which democracy can be absolutely the, the opposite of that. Um, one thing that happens when you have when you when uh, studios and opinion formers start to pay attention to anybody who's uh, writing for writing on the on the internet, whether paid or not, is that an enormous number of people get a significant amount of influence who are doing it for free. Now. All those people are doing doing it nothing else but that for free because they have money, because they are well off, because they are not poor. The, so in fact, in some sense, what that does is is it actually opens up. It, in fact, actually, in some sense, is less democratic, and it also means that a lot of the people who are in that position are more susceptible to the influence of studios and what studios can give them. And Intercool News is a classic example of that. The Intercool News, you may remember, started off this wild independent bandit um, uh, site. Um, within a few years, um, what's his name? I forgot his name. Sorry. Harry Knowles. Harry Knowles was Harvey Weinstein's best chum. 
was being you know flown to Sundowns, um, left, right, and centre, and was writing these these huge kind of you know at, um, uh, in, overinflations of poorer films because he'd been taken. To, I'm sorry. Libeling you, but um, it looked to me as if he was being right, right, these huge overinflations of films because he'd been getting access from uh, from the studios. I mean, you, and, and if you're not being paid and working on a professional basis, then you're actually far more open to that degree of influence than you are if you're, you know, if your money and your influence comes from a result of writing for the Hollywood Reporter or Screen International or even, dare I say, the Irish Times. I think that's one of the rules with a lot of the big uh, publications. I mean, the New York Times, but also the Hollywood Reporter. Is like, if we do a set visit, we're paying for everything. The paper is paying for everything. Mm. I mean, it's not the studio that is saying, "Oh, well, here you have a luxury suite, and here you have a private jet, and here you have." Because then, how can you, you know, give your honest opinion on what you're seeing? And um, but even so, I mean, set visits. I think it's always it feels like publicity to me anyway, because it the is, movie's yeah, not finished yet. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you see that that, that that led, this kind of thing, what happened with Interpol News and the other things, led to a, an online belief that somehow Marvel is bribing film critics for positive reviews yeah. for the Marvel Universe versus the DC Extended Universe. Like, so that it's a very much a Marvel v. DC thing that somehow the Marvel money is being given to critics and they're told, this DC and praise Marvel. And so, Still waiting for the check. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the thing is, it's, it, there are, there, it, there are, and they, that should be a cult mentality. That should be like a small, minor fringe of lunatics. But because of the internet, we've given, um, and because of social media, we've given massive voice to these people. So therefore, and Donald, you come in, you do this an awful lot. You see the when people are looking for a full rage, essentially full, full outrage. You know, where people are coming up against this concept, they see something and they're like, oh, somebody's going to have be outraged by that. And then they're looking, actively yeah. seeking out the outrage. Well, that's another, well that, I mean, that, it, it's sort of less an issue, but the subject of this panel, that's a critic issue, just general issue of how, how film is treated by social media and the social media age. Um, yeah, there was a, I mean, there's a fascinating example of that last week, with the Little Mermaid story, um, where... Uh, Haley Berry, Halle Halle Bailey, Bailey. Yeah. The initial confusion was was Halle exactly. Berry was uh, as an African American singer was cast as in the live action version of Little Mermaid, and there was you know some racist kickback against that. But what I thought was fascinating was that it a number of places, particularly there was a "Not My Aerial" hashtag, um, <laughs> which summed up was like "Not My Aerial," you know, uh, <laughs> and. and um, not my, not my era hashtag. Was people saying like, how can people say this? Like, you know, how can people be so racist and like, you know, it's not even a real character saying like, you know, who is people posting like, but you know, no one on this hashtag is saying anything else. I mean, you've got this like ninety five percent of people on the hashtag have gone onto this hashtag Twitter to point out the fact that they don't agree with the hashtag's existence, yeah. and then it then it then it starts to trend. Yeah. And suddenly it's trending as well. It's like it's only trending because you're going on there to say you don't agree with it. Um, which is not to say there wasn't racist objection, but it did, but but one of the things that fires social media is people going on to object to things they haven't actually seen in the flesh, but they assume are out there. Yeah, no, so they, they, that is fascinating. But then, so one of the other things that that we see coming from, and it happened on the on the Marvel 
the junket for Captain uh, for Captain Marvel, where Brie Larson came out and said that we need more democratization in film criticism, mm. in do. terms of gender representation, in terms of uh, people of color, more uh, people of with differently abled as well, and so that I mean society in general needs to reflect that more in all of its media and arts output. But so this is something because of. There's obviously three guys and one woman on this panel here, so it's just uh, it's, it's it's crucial that that it's seen that as an avenue for for women and for people of, from minority backgrounds that they can become critics as well. So I'm just like just wondering was. I think women are very good critics. <laughs> the interesting thing is, like, all the... We're 50%, by the way, on Screen International. Can I just say 50-50? Yes. Well, we are on the Irish Times, too. There's only two of us. <laughs> but we are on the Irish Times, yes, in that sense. No, I think it's very important, but at the same time, it's also... In general, as we were saying, there are almost no staff positions left at yeah, all. Yeah, so true. it's extremely complicated to sort of, I mean, that is a kind of change that's not going to happen overnight. Um, I think, well, I'm chief critic and I'm reviews editor, so um, I uh, set out to find female critics, you know, and I think that's kind of what you have to do. That's the only, yeah, the only, that's thing the only you way can you're going to do it. Yeah, you're exactly. Say, I'm going to be 50 50 and I'm going to do it this way because most people coming your way are probably going to be men. But, but I do think that. Um, I don't think there's any reason why women shouldn't feel that they can do this as well as anyone else. I'd be, oh, absolutely. you know, I think I no. think just access is, is can be hard. But it they can will. be hard I mean, for anyone, but you know. But they, I mean, you know, women will get slagged off more savagely. That's true. I, I mean, which is a reason perhaps not to pay attention to social media, except yeah. Yeah. the other side of that is that, you know, as women, quite, well, women and men quite rightly say, is that, you know, the, no, the excuse isn't to scare people off. Twitter, okay. you know, the, that, that, that isn't the solution. The, the solution is people to start behaving themselves. Well, like, I disabled our comments you know. on reviews. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. that's, well, that, you know, well, that's I mean, very wise. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I th what, what you get online, it's yeah. horrible. Well, the, the, the interesting talking about Rotten Tomatoes, yeah, the, well, the, 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 I think that if someone were writing a PhD or a book, which I'm sure somebody is, on, on the unhappy relationship between print media and the internet, I think the total misunderstanding of how comment sections were going to work right, yeah. in the new age is, a, is, I think, would make a whole chapter or indeed a whole book in itself. That I'm sure Screen International was in the same position. I mean, Variety still have theirs and they're bonkers. The variety, mm. the, I mean, Variety still have, I mean, it's all kind of like, you know, you're all, you know, social justice warriors and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, the Guardian and the Irish Times and the Times and Telegraph all felt the comment section would be full of people who were like their typical version of a reader, their archetypal version of a reader. So, you know, the Irish Times would be, you know, I don't know, middle-aged doctor from Dublin 4 who had been tweeds who'd be writing in pieces about the first cuckoo of spring, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> the, the, you know, the Guardian for felt would be kind of like a, you know, a sandaled academic from Hampstead who'd be writing into, you know, complaining about the latest biography of George Eliot. Well, in fact, it was all the same maniacs in every site, you know. I mean, it, I mean, it was the same maniacs in The Guardian, The Telegraph, Screen International, and so forth. And that, I mean, but I think, but it's interesting, Finn, that we think you bring up, is that the point at which in Rotten Tomatoes that we, that we, uh, which we were talking about earlier on, where they stopped their comment section was as a result of a lot of things we've been talking about already. It was either the it was either Dark Nights or Dark Knight Returns, I can't remember which, arises. Um, uh, and Stephanie Zakarek from oh, yeah. Time magazine Time, yeah. um, wrote a negative review of it, and just she was just piled on. And, Massacred, yeah. Uh, and she did a very good video about that where she was talking about the fact that 
like we were saying, like, why was she sent to review it? You know, in other words, why didn't you get somebody you already knew who liked the film to review mm. the film? Is what the, That's what they mean, yeah. Essentially, <laughs> the argument. And to be fair to Ron Tomatoes, they were, it was gone. I mean, like, overnight, they just said, no, this is ridiculous. I mean, this is, you know, this is not what, this is not what we thought a comment section was going to be. I mean, ours is now subscribers only, and there's no comments and reviews, for example. Right, right, yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, The Guardian yeah. is, sorry, this is, this is we're drifting away from this, but I think it's very interesting that The Guardian in particular, The Guardian tied themselves to comment section early on that they, they launched, they had this sub-brand called Comment is Free, mm. which is a quote from Scott, their founder, um, uh, and everything would have comments underneath it, and there was a whole kind of Comment is Free section where they were basically, the readers were, and you look at The Guardian now, and I would say about 10% of their articles now have comment section, all, rest, all gone, and, sorry, one but the same subject, but I think this, this, this is an interesting and bizarre story about where we are in this world. To demonstrate again wh wh where we're coming from in this is that, um, and that the, the and that the vitriol is, is is directed particularly at women. It was a bizarre case a few years ago when they had their Oscar hustings thing. I don't know if you know this, they have this thing where someone, one journalist, stands up for one of the pictures that's nominated the best picture at the Oscars, and they had a comment section beneath all of them, all nine, I suppose it was that year, except one, and there was no comment section beneath Lady Bird, because every time that film be mentioned, or kind of garbage be mentioned, sexist piled in and said, who's this talentless bent? You know, what the, 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 you know, why would I want to go and see that? And it was really conspicuous. There were like nine of these things on the page. You know, comment below, fun for the conference, and then this one with no comment section. Sobering, That's it? depressing, yeah. Yeah, I, just, I really don't feel good hearing this no. story, yeah. actually. It's still there. You can go, you can go and look it up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's still on, on their site. You can go and look it up. I'm not making this up. Well, staying on, on, on that, on the, gen, on the gender topic just for a second, because there's, there's, a, there's a concept of the canon within film criticism. There's a concept that there is a certain number of film filmmakers who, whose work has become canonical to, to the making of film. And the Sight and Sound 100 being the sort of personification of that of that um, canon, but there's, it's all old white men predominantly, and so, and which, I mean, they are the people who have made films historically, and that thankfully that is changing, but they're, they're, this thing about, the, is, the, is a canon useful if it reinforces the old prejudice, or is it, should it, should, how do you widen it to make it more representative of where we are now, you know, seeing as how critics are supposed to be the gatekeepers of this canon. <laughs> I don't think you can change what's gone. You just accept. Well, that's the, yeah. The issue, yeah, I mean, there's the, the sort of two things here. I mean, the, the, the um, I think there's been greater efforts to go back through film history and pay attention to those films made by women and by people and minorities that should have got more attention than they did at the time. Yeah. But that's, as you suggested, not going to alter the fact that there are still fewer of them around. Fewer, fewer of them around. You can't re rewrite history. You can't find films that don't exist. But you can, and people have, and are working hard to find those films that, 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 that were ignored. I mean, it's interesting how someone like Chantal Ackerman um, has, from being a, regarded critically as a relatively fringe figure in her time in the seven, well, she died quite recently, but mm. when she's at a, at, a, at a height of her, when most attention was directed towards the 1970s, is now absolutely canonical. Mm. And Jean Demand. Agnes Varda. 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 Yeah, it was Varda, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would, it's interesting that that sight and sound pull comes along on the 
two, year two, I think. <laughs> I think it's 2002, 2012, and so on. So it went along not too far away. I wouldn't be surprised if Chantal Ackerman's Jean Demain, um, that long address where it said yeah. her famous uh, film about um, a woman left alone in her house, um, will be the top ten. Inside well, and sound. I have a feeling I, that, that, that that's one of those shifts. That, I mean, insofar as these lists matter, but I mean, it's, it's, I have a feeling that will be edged up, um, uh, you know, up there with the, the searchers and singing in the rain. And, oh, and, uh, well, I have a feeling. Well, Sight and Sound's about to undergo a new change in editorship and I think a pretty significant shake up. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a different attitude mm-hmm, emanating mm-hmm. from the BFI with regard to. Yeah. How they go general, about. Yeah, yeah. I think they're certainly trying another. I'm sure they will. Well, I would be surprised. I mean, they haven't appointed a new editor yet, have they? Nick Cobb. It could well be. Well, could well be a woman. I think that will be one of their prime objectives. Yeah, but I think. I mean, I don't know what you guys think about this, but but I mean, that's the really tricky issue: the notion of notion of 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 diversity within that list. But there's another argument which is often made about that canon. I think this. I don't know if you all know about this, but it's the Sight and Sounds uh, poll of, of which uh, I participated in as one last year, for 2012, where they create all over the world and they name their list. There's a list which is available on the British Film Institute's website, and it's sort of been a kind of canon. Like for years, it was Citizen Kane was the top film for 30, 40 years, and Vertigo took over last um, time around, and it was uh, um, uh, it was um, like when. Um, uh, uh, it was like when finally, when um, uh, uh, Brian Adams was knocked off the top, 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 of, the, the top of the charts in 1992. Though I'm not comparing, obviously, that song to Citizen Kane, but it was like that. And but and people do pay attention to those things. Um, but one thing we'll say is that oh, but God, look at this list now. The list is now the, the top 10, 20, 25 is full of films from at least 30 or 40 years ago, and it's always the same people. That I have less of an issue with because at some some point I think that like you look, know, you know. If you want to find a list on the internet in which the Matrix is the best film of all time, there are yeah, thousands of them out there. Like, you know, you can just give them. us this one thing. Yeah. Just give us this one place which kind of celebrates, kind of, you know, which uses kind of like 19th century novel kind of um, conventions in selecting what are the best films. But I do, I mean, you know, Sight and Sound, like, you know, being perceived as being this Sight and Sound. Can I just say that Sight and Sound didn't include me in any of their panels? And, and, they, not, no, and no. they did not include Wendy Eyde either. Right. And they did not include Kate Muir. Right. So, right. you know, what is here, we, here yeah. we go. Yeah, you yeah. know, so, yeah. so well, I think that when I say things are changing, I really hope I should they say, will. I should say that my colleague Tara was included in the 2012 right. poll, but, um, which I think she was, she was quite surprised by, but, uh, but happy <laughs> yeah, nonetheless yeah, yeah. that they. They, they know, were I mean, paying that much attention. Who watches the watchkeeper side? <laughs> yeah, well, that's actually... Yeah, yeah, you know. But yeah. I do think there's a breath of fresh air coming in. I can feel it. I think things are changing. Yes. I think people are thinking about things differently, and I would prefer to accentuate the positive going forward and um, yeah. hold on to that. And Absolutely. Think of what was on the red carpet at Cannes this year and think of how people are, are checking themselves. You know, I mean, when I started editing, you would consistently get, you know... Reviews which said he has a girlfriend, blah 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 blah, blah and the girlfriend doesn't have a name. Yeah. <laughs> Her friend isn't acted by anybody. I mean, it may be an underwritten part, but perhaps we could just point that out in the review. You know, so I say I feel personally that things are changing, and I think they're only going to get better, frankly. But keep the pressure on, and you know, and we'll get there. Yeah, no, it's great. it is. It is. It is a rising tide, and it is going to going to sweep change. And I think that's uh, that's a perfect moment to to end this. Uh, you know, to just get us all out back into the fresh air again because it's really <laughs> nice outside so thank you very much for coming and listening to us ramble for you know the last 40, 50 minutes 
Thank you. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah, I, no. Anybody? I'm just aware of the time, but yeah. No, oh, yeah, just yeah. quickly. Any, anybody yeah. got yes, any questions? Yeah. I mean, just. No? Yes. 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 <laughs> Then? Do I answer first? Yes. The fan and the film crew. I find it very difficult to be objective when it comes to Pedro Almodovar. <laughs> <laughs> I just love everything he does. So sometimes when that happens, I'll try to get someone else to write the review because I feel a bit worried that I'd just be a big old fan. You yeah, I'm not, I'm not thinking about a film in particular, but uh, for me as a trade writer, I mean, you sort of have to separate your own taste a little bit from you know, how the general audience reaction is going. Yeah, what, it's, what do you think it's going to be? Like, for example, I'm not a horror film fan. Like, I mean, I would give everything zero stars because I think they're ridiculous. <laughs> but, I mean, Boo. that's... Yeah. <laughs> but that's... Elises. That's, you know, part of my job is to review also horror films and, I, and to, to make sense of them for an audience that knows and, and horror films, that likes horror films. So in that sense, I have to sort of separate my own taste from... Um, I mean, sometimes there are good horror films, but it's just, yeah, I, I don't know. I always find them very... I have to laugh because I just think it's ridiculous, you know. I'm not scared. I'm just, yeah, for me, they're comedies, basically. So that is the sort of thing that you have to separate in your head where your own sort of personal taste and, and the audience that you're writing for are two different things. So that, this happens actually quite a lot when you're writing for a trade uh, paper, I find. Uh, funny, I was thinking about that. The first thing that sprung into my mind, interestingly, is something I saw here um, 12, 10, 12, 11 years ago, which was Nick Rogue's Puffball. Um, which uh, screened here at, um, I don't think it was supposed to be midnight, but I think it was supposed to be 11 o'clock, it ended up being midnight, and was interminable, and was terrible. And I can almost think of thinking, thinking like, oh, I, I sort of idolised Nick Rogue almost as much as anybody in the world, and can I write a, you know, sarky pan of this? And in the end I did. <laughs> because it was there and right in front of me, and you know, the ball was there and the goal it was an open goal. But that, I didn't feel good doing that. Well not, that, well, not that bad, but it didn't feel good. <laughs> no, but it's true. I mean, sometimes you feel like you have to get, sort of get over yourself. And it's as if you, if you really like someone's work, then you're, all, of course, rooting for them, you know. But, yeah, n not every movie is a masterpiece, unfortunately, so. Cool. Great. Good well, that's well. That's a very good question. That's what I was talking about earlier on. I mean, the the uh, usually on a on a on a uh, you know, these guys are different schedules on a, on a on a daily newspaper. You you can you have a day or two to ponder it. But we've talked a lot about the festival situation here, and you have no time in that situation. I mean, I'm not. I mean, I, I was joking a bit about the, the Twitter review from Once of the Steps, but I mean. I mean, the review you're getting in, and this actually, to be fair, this is not even actually really an internet thing. Uh, you know, in the, in the olden days when, <coughs> say it can, the film be on at half past eight, people were working towards a print deadline that was the next day, all of them. So uh, in those situations, no, you do have to, you are forced into opinion that you might revise. And I, and I, I think I, it was typical for you, of course, because you wouldn't have a second review. No. But in my case, I'd be writing a festival report 
and then writing a review, or my colleague might do it, but if I was, and, and in that case, to answer your question, yes, there have been situations when I've gone back and to use that crude system we none of us like, I've gone down a star or up a star when I thought about it. People said like, but, you know, how is this possible? You gave me because I've changed my mind. <laughs> Always remember, this is just somebody's opinion. You know, I think for us, I mean, uh, about two hours we have after the movie ends to get, to get our 800 word review up. And, uh, you know, you might just need 20 minutes just to get from wherever it's screening to your computer, so <laughs> that leaves you an hour and 40 minutes. Mm. Um, so it's really... They're the worst ones. Yeah, I mean, I really love them, but it's... Like, if you're in Cannes, you might have really, really challenging movies, you know, intellectually and aesthetically, and, and or if it's a documentary about some sort of subject about which you know absolutely nothing and you'd love to do some research, but how, when, no, you can't. So you just have to sort of churn them out. That's the only solution. I live in fear that something will have been allegory and I will have taken it literally. <laughs> like it would be like, and I will have missed the point and it will be out and that's it and I can't take it. Well, it was a very good example actually uh, of, of, someone, of someone just catching themselves. I can't remember which of our colleagues it was in Variety. Um, uh, one of the senior critics in Variety um, reviewed the recent Martin Scorsese Rolling Thunder um, that, uh, yeah, yeah, I thought that it was. Uh, well, it was a very interesting. I don't know if you guys know this, but it's full of stuff that they made up. There, there's a scene with Sharon Stone, Sharon where she Stone. talks about being there, and she wasn't there. She was nowhere near the, the Rolling Thunder. Bob, this is Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder tour, and they invent a filmmaker who shot the footage. So it actually was Ronaldo and Clara, most of it, I think. Anyway, all kind of stuff is made up and consciously made up as a kind of gag. And whoever it was, Owen Gleeman, whoever it was, like you know, half of you said like. Um, I was happy with this review and I, until someone pointed out that all this stuff was made up and I had to go on back and rewrite the review and so happily I'm not, which is, which is very honest of him to say so, I happen to say. You could have just rewritten written the review and not said that, but I thought that was an interesting example of the kind of thing you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. No, no, I mean, and sometimes it's very hard to figure out what's really, I mean, I'm, I'm, this story reminds me of this uh, review in the New York Times that Manola wrote um, for uh, Gus Van Sant, The Last Days, which is a sort of very dreamy, it's not a very narrative-driven film, let's, let's put it that way. And she saw it very, very early at a press screening, and um, there was, it was shown on film, and it got the order of the reels oh, the wrong really? way. Yeah. But she didn't realize, because it was oh, a sort I of can, dreamy film. So. Yeah, I, I, can, I, can, I can sympathize with that. Yeah, yeah I can absolutely sympathize with that. And then, yeah. for some weird reason, um, and since she, she'd seen it quite early, there was another press screening, and she's like, I'd like to see that again. And she went to see it again, and then she's like, wait, hold on, <laughs> hold on, what's going on? And she talked about this in a review, which is great. Yeah, um, no, I, I, if it was an Agatha Christie adaptation, then you'd have no excuse. But in the case yeah. of Gus Van Sant, <laughs> Gus Van Sant's last days, I, can, I, I have total sympathy for her. Yeah, but these are things where, you're, I mean, you're just assuming that what you're seeing is the right thing, mm -hmm. and that there's nothing else that you can do. I mean, yeah, you just have to yeah. sort of go with it. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't revise anything ever, so you don't, right? We no. don't. No. No. I, I have an example of that because I, in addition to Run Skin On, I work for Treasure Entertainment in a production capacity, so I help make film. And so one of our films came out recently and it has Spanish language in it. And it screened for critics in Dublin without the subtitles. And the question was, did then, then we had to go back and tell the, 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 the critics that this had happened, that, there was, that the subtitle track was missing for, the, for some of the sections. Some of the sections in Spanish are not meant to be translated because it's conversations between the husband and wife and you're not meant to understand them, they happen on the phone. But the ones where, or no, those ones, sorry, those ones are the ones you're meant to understand. The ones where he's speaking Spanish and, and the, the main character is speaking in English, there's meant to be a language confusion, so that those parts aren't 
subtitled. So we then had to go back and explain to the critics that they had seen a thing that wasn't quite right, and then we had to rescreen it for certain ones as well because of that. So you do get this, these instances where you may end up seeing a film not as it actually is meant to be theatrically presented for various different cock-up reasons or whatever that happens. So I mean, the Kashish film that screened in competition in Cannes, it, <laughs> it had no color grading, the sound mix wasn't done, there were no uh, end titles, there was nothing. <laughs> I mean, Just a lot of... A, a lot of, yeah, <laughs> bottoms. <laughs> bottoms. It's a three-hour film about essentially people pole dancing in a nightclub. So exactly, yeah. yeah. So there was a lot of that, but... Yeah. yeah, and it's really Wet. hard as a film yeah. critic to sort of, like, you know the film is not finished, yeah. but, I mean, they're screening it that way in Cannes, so you're, the only thing you can do is write about it in that condition. Oh, they, 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 well, they have no excuse. I mean, no. if they allow it, I mean, no one's forcing them. And after all, Apocalypse Now won the Palme d'Or when it wasn't finished, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> it can be done. Two boos from the audience as well, so yeah. which goes to say that initial reactions aren't always, you know... Oh, I think being booed in Cannes is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, thank you for not booing us here today. So, yeah, <laughs> so far. It's yeah, time yet. We appreciate you taking your time out to, to listen to us. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.